Good evening, everyone. First of all, can you hear me okay? I'm, I'm trying this new fangled microphone. Just want to make sure it works out. Good. In the 10th century in China, there was this eccentric Zen monk by the name of Budai, or in, in Japanese, Hotei. And I'm, I'm sure you know the figure of him. He's the, uh, what's called the laughing Buddha, the, the one with not much hair on his head and that big belly, and often he's smiling or laughing. And he was known to be this, this eccentric monk, monk that, that had a, a great wisdom and a, a great quality of awakening. And he would walk around teaching the Dharma, playing with children, helping out the poor. And his name, Hote in Japanese or, or Budai, uh, literally means cloth sack because he was all, always seen when he was walking around having a cloth sack with him, stuffed with his things. And I, I guess I just want to begin with the image of Budai. I, I love the image of him, especially the way he was painted in, uh, from by a lot of uh, Japanese artists, especially in the kind of the, the 18th and 19th century, those, those beautiful ink paintings that you've probably seen. And there was one uh, Japanese painter by the name of Utagawa uh, Kuniyoshi who, who paints this beautiful picture of, of Budai sitting next to this, lake, this uh, pool of water. And I love it because you can see within the brushstrokes just this quality of ease, but not only ease, uh, a quality of, of joy. And to me, it really shows in this uh, form of an image of this being who is um, in the world, but not entangled with the world. And it's true, it could be the other reason is that when I see the image, I see someone else that is kind of balding like me, and I think there is still hope. <laughs> I just need the big belly. Which, on a side note, I think it's good to know, if, if you come off this retreat, or you find that you're gaining weight on this retreat, that's a good sign, right? There is the, the manifestation of wisdom in your practice. <laughs> so take it as a good sign. But oppositely, if you find that you're losing weight, please um, remember patience. It takes a while. <laughs> so a story about uh, uh, Putai. One day, a Zen monk came up to uh, Budai and asked him, please, please teach me the essence, the essence of, of Buddhism, the essence of Zen. And Budai drops his cloth sack. And then the monk asks, well, what's next? And Budai simply picks up his sack and continues to walk. And tonight what I want to share with you is this skill of Budai, the skill of letting go of the sack, skillfully letting go of it, and also skillfully taking it up. How do we do that? And in particular, how do you skillfully let go of this sense of self? How do you drop that sack that we can get so easily entangled by? But also, how do you skillfully take it up? How do you utilize a sense of self? What's its importance on this path? Maybe more simply, how do you skillfully be somebody and how do you skillfully be nobody? So I want to begin just by defining this term of how I'm using this term, sense of self. So we have a, a basis of what we're talking about. What I mean by that is, is this feeling sense that we have that comes with a sense of self is this sense of agency and the sense of continuity that comes with that. And I'm also including in, in this uh, a sense of identity. 
which hopefully we'll see is crucial in our lives, but also can be very entangling. And what I mean by, by identity is these characteristics that define us sometimes individually, sometimes collectively. And as I get into this, the first thing I want to point out is that this is, I I want to emphasize that this is a practice that the Buddha, I I feel the Buddha is really pointing this out, and I'll I'll show you in in the the Pali discourses, this practice of skillfully taking up this this sack, this sack of the sense of self, and skillfully letting go of it. And the skill hinges upon one, um, one deep realization that really is something that we're trying to get in our bones while we're doing this practice on this retreat. And that's this realization that there's not some fixed thing or person behind a moment-to-moment experience. There's not even a fixed thing behind this sense of self. Not a fixed thing behind a sense of agency, behind that sense of continuity. Not a fixed person behind identity. I find the example of a seed that grows into a tree, uh, a good example of this. When you plant a seed in the ground and it grows into the tree, in, into a tree, it's this ever-changing process. When, yet when you look within inside the, the seed or even the tree, you can't find some under, um, unchanging unit underneath that process. All it is is a process. And what we're trying to do is to drop the sack of thinking that there's something unchanging behind experience. Yet also knowing how to pick up this, this sense of, of continuity or sense of agency skillfully. And again, a practice, something that we're trying to realize in the depths of our bones, not even a philosophical position. And it's true later on in Buddhism, as Buddhism continues to flower, it does become a philosophical position, this position of not-self. One of the things I appreciate about the Buddha that at least I'm beginning to become familiar with in the Pali Canon is it it feels like he, he taught in a more fluid way than sometimes what I find comes after the Pali Canon. Sometimes in a poetic way and, a, and, and most importantly, a very practical way. And he's, he situates this, this practice of what I'm going to call being somebody and being nobody in a place of practice rather than a stance. And he clarifies this. This comes from the second discourse in the middle-length discourses. And he's talking about how to attend appropriately to experience and what it is to attend inappropriately to experience. So he says, as a practitioner attends inappropriately, one of six kinds of views arise in them. And I'm just going to go over two of them. The first is the view I have a self arises in them as true and established. Or the view I have no self arises in them as true and established. These, these are called a thicket of views, a wilderness of views, a fetter of views. Bound by a fetter of views, the uninstructed run-of-the-mill person is not freed from birth, aging, and death, from sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair. They are not freed, I tell you, from suffering and stress. I, I find this striking. Either view, I have a self, I don't have a self. It's just a view, it's just taking up a position. And he's saying that's an inappropriate way to practice. We're not here to take a stand philosophically. And then, fortunately, he gives us a way to attend appropriately. This is how a practitioner is attend appropriately. This is stress. This is the origination of stress. This is the cessation of stress. This is the way leading to the cessation of stress. As they attend appropriately in this way, the fetters are abandoned in them. 
the practice of understanding suffering and its ending. Not taking up a view. Seeing how the mind gets entangled in a self. And that with the letting go, there's a freedom. So this, this evening, I want to share with you really this practice rather than some philosophical position. And, and again, in the context of the frame I'm giving you tonight, it's the question of how do you skillfully pick up being somebody? How do you skillfully pick up that sack of a sense of self in a way that leads to the end of suffering, that leads to awakening? And how do you skillfully let go of it in a way that, that is practical, that leads to the heart's release? So first, let's, uh, let's take some time to explore what it is to be somebody and how it's important along this path. How do you pick up that bag? The sense of agency, the sense of continuity. There's a discord in the, discourse in the numerical discourses called the Atakari Sutta. And when I first read it, I was quite surprised because in the sutta, this Brahmin comes up to the Buddha and says, listen, I want to tell you what my stance is. My stance is that there is no self-doer. There's no sense of self behind doing. And it's striking what the Buddha says to the Brahmin. He says, basically he says, I'm going to, of course, paraphrase, really? (laughs) You can't tell me that. I mean, when, haven't you had the experience of initiating an action? That there's an, an initiation of an action, there can be even a sense of a continuation within that action. And that points to this, this quality of self-doing. And I thought to myself, why would the Buddha be saying this? And on further reflection, and then of course commentaries to suttas always help. <laughs> realizing that a, a sense of agency, a sense of self is, is um, a, a essential on a number of different levels. One, uh, in terms of the practice that you're doing here, there needs to be a sense of agency in the sense of the willingness to be present, the willingness to be here moment after moment. And that requires a sense of agency. That, that what you do makes a difference. A sense that you can change the course of things. And underneath that, as probably many of you know, the, the uh, essential realm of ethics. I need to have a sense that, that the actions that I get involved with have consequences to them. And as a result of that, there's going to be a wisdom, a discernment upon, uh, about the kinds of actions that I'm gonna get involved with. So a sense of agency. And I, I find it important for keeping my practice alive that what, I'm, what I do on retreat makes a difference in my own life and in this world. A sense of agency that has ramifications. a sense that you can change the course of things. And, and for me, I, I find that uh, what we're doing here is really a very simple movement that has radical consequences. The simple movement of being aware of your experience, accepting how it is, noticing what's going on, makes a huge shift over time. There's an image that uh, I, get, I got from one of my uh, teachers, Sokni Rinpoche, which I, I think is a beautiful image of what we're doing here. It says, imagine that you're on the ship. Let's say you're on the ship somewhere on the East Coast. And if, if you think about it, just a small movement in the rudder of the ship will take you in a radically different position, take you in a radically different place. With a small shift in the rudder, you can either end up in Ireland or all the way down near Namibia or South Africa, just from that small movement. 
And over time, it makes this radical change in course for that ship. This is what happens on retreat, is we make this small movement, that small shift from, as, as I like to say, is, is that you hear the content of, of, of what I'm saying, but there also can be a knowing that hearing is happening. And with that small shift, that's what radically changes the direction of these mind streams. A sense of agency. And for me, one of the things that I've gotten out of long retreat, and I, I, I'm sure most of you have experienced this as well, is a, is a kind of confidence within that sense of agency. I want to point out, you probably wouldn't have survived this long on this retreat if you didn't have some confidence in your own sense of agency. Uh, the confidence to weather difficulty to the confidence to keep on going. I remember getting a sense of this when I was um, uh, practicing in Nepal. I, would, I, I did a, a snit, I was, I was going back every year doing two or three month retreats. And I'd have these retreat days that I would call um, not wanting to be on retreat days. <laughs> Has anyone ever had a not wanting to be on retreat day? <laughs> so I'm not the only one. And it, it felt bodily, like my whole body, well, of course, my mind too, especially, did not want to be doing this practice at all. And it, it was so cool, especially when there's momentum in the practice, just that shift to see that, oh, wow, this is just a state of mind. That's all it took was just to see that this, this is just a state of mind that's, that's arising and it's not a big deal and I can continue with my practice. I just need to see it for what it is. And I noticed that that could arise more easily when I had this confidence in, in this sense of agency, the sense of agency of engaging in the practice. As, as the Buddha says in the Dhammapada, he says, irrigators guide the water, fletchers shape the arrow shaft, carpenters shape the wood, good practitioners shape themselves. Here we all are involved in this art, this art of shaping ourselves. And within this sense of agency, which is important to, to um, embody, is also uh, cultivating this, this sense of positive regard for oneself. As, as one person put it to me, which I, I think was the uh, such important um, language, is, is getting the feeling that it's okay to take up space. And when I talk about this important feeling of uh, the okayness of, of taking up space, and one is is uh, the the okayness of getting a sense that that, that we can really uh, allow our practice to unfold uh, towards awakening. Because there can be so much self-doubt in this realm. There's a quote from Annie Dillard from her book, Holy the Firm, that I think expresses the kind of state of mind that gets in the way of this and an important thing to remember. And in this context, she's using Christian language, but I, I feel like it speaks to what we're doing here. She asked the question, who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? There is no one but us. There is no one to send, nor a clean hand, nor a pure heart on the face of the earth, nor in the earth, but only us. A generation comforting ourselves with the notion that we have come at an awkward time, that our innocent fathers are all dead, as if innocence had ever been. But there is no one but us. There never has been.
Do you hear what she's revealing in the, just the statement of there is no one but us? I know I've had this, this perspective that awakening is for those people in Burma, those people in Thailand, someone other than me, and especially people that are better than me, that somehow aren't as flawed as me. Th those are the people that, 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 um, that can awaken. And what a turn, right? Th there's actually no one but us. There's not like there's more innocent people out there that are closer to it than all of us in this room. Can you have confidence in this sense of agency that can lead to the heart's release? It helps, it helps for this quality of seeing that it's okay to take up space. For me, early on in my practice, I remember seeing this dynamic, which was really important for me to see. Just a caveat about this, I've been realizing all the stories I've been telling about my life as a Zen monk makes it sound like the darkest, worst thing in the world. <laughs> there were some days that were okay. <laughs> But I remember uh, getting the sense of, um, and I think this is before I got ordained, and it was in part of, partly impelling me to get ordained, was the sense of wanting to be invisible. And, and I could see that it was a kind of conditioning that somehow invisibility was equated with safety. That I would feel all right as if I couldn't be seen and not wanting to be seen. And the sense of being conditioned that it wasn't okay to be seen. And on one level, being a monk was the perfect way out, right? <laughs> maybe here, maybe here I can become invisible. Maybe here I can really not be seen. And what I started to, to realize, this attempt to disappear, was actually what I needed to cultivate was a strong sense of self because there was something, something really unskillful about that. You can say it was a... a a disappearing kind of self that I was grasping at, uh, after. But I needed the bodily feeling of it was okay to take up space with a sense of agency. And in getting a sense of that, what I started to realize about practice is once there could be a stability of okay, that it was okay to take up space, then I could move into this practice more and more deeply to get more and more of the destabilizing taste of being nobody. Another poem that I feel exemplifies this process of, of the importance of taking up space, the importance of being somebody, the importance of having a, self, a sense of self. There's a poem by May Sarton, it's entitled, May I, Now I Become Myself. And before I share it with you, I want to give you a little bit of the background of May Sarton because I, I think it gives a different feeling of this poem and to talk about a little bit the, the context of the time of her life when she wrote it. So May Sarton was in the 1940s and 50s in a same-sex relationship. And I think most of us know living in this country and not following the heterosexual norm, it's challenging. And I imagine in the 1940s and 1950s, it was probably even more challenging, extremely marginalized. And, and extremely challenging in the sense of having a strong sense of self, of, of not buying into needing to be invisible. Because I think as many of you know who have been marginalized, that's the message that, that we can get when we're on the margins, is that we should be invisible. And she wrote this poem uh, during this time of her life, in the, uh, I think it was the early 1950s. I just want to read to you the, the first part of this poem. Oh, one more thing I, I wanted to mention about her, just to give a sense of this too, is it was interesting, it wasn't until the 1960s that she started to openly write about lesbianism.
And it was, she said, because she said uh, it brought up the greatest fear for her. And the greatest fear is that it would destroy her career to, to actually be out about it at that time. She begins, now I become myself. It's taken time, many years and places. I have been dissolved and shaken, worn other people's faces, run madly as if time were there, terribly old, crying a warning, hurry, you'll be dead before, before what? Before you reach the morning or the end of the poem is the clear? Or love safe in the walled city? Now to stand still, to be here, feel my own weight and density. Now I become myself. It's taken time, many years and places. I've been dissolved and shaken, worn other people's faces, run madly as if time were there, terribly old, crying a warning, hurry, you'll be dead before, before what? Before you reach the morning or the end of the poem is clear or love safe in the walled city? Now to stand still, to be here, feel my own weight and density. It's so important to feel our own weight, our own density. And I appreciate what she says about that process, that it takes time, it takes years, different places. And the things that she had to go through of being dissolved and shaken and the process of wearing other people's faces before, before she could really come into feeling her own weight and density. Through her own weight and density, through a strong sense of self, through a strong sense of identity. And, and as I said, especially if, if we're like Mae Sarton, and if, if we have a kind of identity that's been marginalized around sexual orientation or race or ethnicity, gender or nationality, it, it's so important to feel your own weight and density. Especially, as I'm saying, if you found yourself in a context that it feels like you're being told to be invisible, you're being told that you don't count. And what a gift to the world to actually claim that weight and density, to help break a dominant paradigm that causes so much harm. And I would say it's even more important to feel your own weight and density in terms of, of any idea, identity that you carry in the places where you're part of a dominant group. And a dominant group in terms of, again, being heterosexual or American, having English as your first language, white, middle class to upper class, male, how do you maneuver that weight and density of that identity? How do you maneuver it in a way that's actually not blind to the privileges that come with those kinds of identity? That's not blind to difference. That's not blind to power imbalance. That doesn't confine others or make others feel invisible. When you have that weight and density in a dominant group, it's so important to recognize the leverage around that and to skillfully utilize it. So essential if, if, we're, if we're committed to, to non-harming, if we're committed to ethics. In the areas of privilege in my life, this has been such an important exploration. Has it been easy? No. Has it involved a lot of mistakes? Yeah. Does it continue? Yes. So again, the skill of being somebody 
being somebody that leads to awakening. Getting a feeling that it's okay to take up space, to walk in the world in an ethical way. Under this, this sense of self in terms of agency, in terms of continuity. How to stabilize skillfully being somebody. I, I so appreciated how Greg said this a few mornings ago, that he said the practice is just me being okay with being Greg. <laughs> oh, wasn't that so precise? Of learning to be friends with yourself rather than, and just to tie it into his, his, his talk last night, rather than trying to, to uh, achieve some kind of perfection. And how do we do that? Through the practice that you're doing, moment after moment, day after day. Bringing awareness. And it works, it really works. It's amazing, it's not like we have to do something differently. There's a sense where we can start to take up space and feel okay about it. To come into ourselves, to embody ourselves. To be somebody in a skillful way rather than an entangled way. And, and there's an, another thing that I've found helpful to kind of stabilize this healthy sense of agency, this healthy sense of self. It's in what the Buddha calls in one place, the equipment of the mind. The equipment of the mind being, you could say, this, this practice of self-appreciation. As he says, he says, here, student, a practitioner is honest, thinking, I am honest. And when she, when she does this, she gains inspiration in the meaning, gains inspiration in the Dhamma, gains gladness connected with the Dhamma. It is that gladness connected with the wholesome that I call an equipment of the mind. Or another example, one who engages in generosity, thinking, I am one who engages in generosity. She gains inspiration in the meaning, gains inspiration in the Dhamma, gains gladness connected with the Dhamma. It is that gladness connected with the wholesome that I call an equipment of the mind. Do you hear this practice of, of self-appreciation, of appreciating the good, the wholesome activities, the wholesome things that you're doing? as cultivating this wholesome sense of self. It took me a while to actually realize this practice and really fully embody it. It started after I was teaching. I remember uh, I began teaching uh, retreats with my one of my mentors, Eric Kolvig. This was in, I think, 2006. And we had finished leading a five-day retreat and he, he turned to me and uh, he said, you know, Brian, we just did a good thing. And I said, yeah. He was so stern with me. And I don't know if some of you know him. He's a very, usually a very soft person, but he was so forceful with me. And he said, listen, that will not do. You have to realize this is a really good thing that we've done. And then I realized I was bypassing this, this appreciation for the wholesome thing that we are engaged in. It was, it was a big wake-up call for me. And it was beautiful. Over the years, actually, we, just had, we, we taught our last retreat this last September. So over seven or eight years of doing retreats together, it was such a beautiful ritual that we'd have together. At the end of each retreat, we'd, we'd, we'd look at one another and just say, you know what, we did a good thing. And to actually take time to savor that. Because as the Buddha is saying here, it cultivates this equipment of the mind that, that he says develops a mind that is without hostility, without ill will. Can you appreciate the wholesomeness that you're engaged in? I find when I'm on retreat, it's so wonderful. And I'll just say this to myself when I'm going to sleep, Brian, you did a good thing today. 
engaged in this practice? Can you cultivate the capacity to actually let that in? It creates this, this skillful sense of, of self that's needed for the unfolding of this practice. The gratitude for your goodness. So again, being somebody, it's, it's important. This sense of, a, a skillful sense of agency and continuity. For this, this practice of non-harming, for this, this sense of moving forward in the practice. The practice of picking up the sack. Now on to dropping the sack, being nobody. <laughs> Again, it, the problem is, is when we start to believe, when you start to believe that there's some fixed thing behind the sense of agency, behind the sense of identity that I've just been talking about. That we believe that decisions and actions can only ha- can, uh, can, cannot happen, or can only happen when there's a decider or a do- doer that thoughts can only happen when there's a thinker. But as I'm proposing, it's not like this. I gave you the example of the seed growing into the tree. It doesn't need to be some kind of unchanging entity within that process. So, so how do we start to, to see this, this, what I'm going to call this, well, it's just a bad scene. <laughs> when, you, when you have this sense of self and then you think there's uh, someone uh, behind it. How does this manifest? How do you see it? And then eventually we'll get to how to practice with this. One way that this uh, takes form is I have the belief that I am in control. So I'm varying this, right? Or when I said that to be somebody is a sense that I can change the course of things. But changing the course of things is different than feeling like I'm in control. And this, this uh, difference is subtle but significant. I can change the rudder of the ship, but it doesn't mean I'm completely in control of the ship. All kinds of storms that can happen. And, and this is one of the things that the Buddha's uh, pointing out. For example, there was a debater by the name of, uh, I hope I can say this right, Agi Visena. And Agi Visena claimed that, that this body is myself. Perceptions are myself. Mental formations are myself. Consciousness are myself. And the Buddha asks Agi Visena, really, if that is so, are you in complete control of the body? Can you, when you say, do this body, is it always following what you want? If you want to stay completely young, will your body stay in those, those, those mid-twenties that you so desire? It doesn't work that way. We're not in control of experience. And this is one of the things that we're seeing is, is how we can change the course of things, but we're not in control. We're not in complete control. And what I realize is if I were to truly and deeply understand that I'm not in complete control, this mind wouldn't get lost in reactivity if it really got it, if I got it in my bones. The reactivity comes because there's still a sense that I might be in control. It's not the case. We're trying to get a different feeling sense for how to be in the world. And, and you could say the strong sense of self that I was just speaking about allows this insight to come in, to have a capacity to be with it, to be with the uncontrollable or unreliable aspect of experience. To open up to the instability that we're living in, in a, in a fluid way, in a graceful way. So again, this is one way that we can see the, the, the idea that there's something unchanging underneath experience, that picking up um, uh, the unskillful way of picking up this sack, the sense of self that we actually want to let go, the sense that we, we are in control. 
And then there's another aspect of this, and that's when there's a rigidity around identity. As I was saying, identity is so important in terms of taking up space and in terms of non-harming. Yet so much suffering when we get entangled with it. Again, another poem that I feel exemplifies this, and this was written by the poet Virginia Hamilton Adair. And interestingly, she lived in Claremont, California. And this was before I was at uh, Mount Baldy Center, Mount Baldy Zen Center, the place I trained as a a Zen monk. And Mount Baldy was, you could say, kind of right up above Claremont, California. And she would come up uh, when she was living there and every so often do session, do retreat up there. And this poem is about one of her experiences on retreat. And the title of it is Zazen, or you could say sitting meditation. She begins, when I first floundered in, no one knew me, not even myself. Staggering under a Saratoga trunk, crammed with humiliations, bottled like urine samples, nail kegs of anger, carbons of abusive letters, chemistry quizzes with Fs, even the horse I never had. And the two casseroles left over from the dime a dip supper, no one remarked that I'd brought too much. I was wearing three fur hats donated by opulent cousins, my feet encased in cement ever since the failure of the patio project, and my mouth full of barbs as an old trout. No one praised me on my appearance. The trunk fell off my back, disgorging its unusual contents at my stone feet, which also came off. The fur hats tumbled like a moth-eaten avalanche burying a small monk. No one noticed. My sweat began to dry. I folded myself into one piece. No one. It's great, yeah? She, she flounders in. No one knew me, not even myself, staggering under a Sar- Saratoga trunk, crammed with humiliations, bottled like urine, urine samples. Have you noticed yet the Saratoga trunk that you brought to the retreat? <laughs> it's wild, the stuff that we've crammed in there. And I, I, I don't think it was on the uh, to bring list of, of on the IMS <laughs> website <laughs> the last time I looked. <laughs> and, and I love her uh, list of what's, what we cram in the Saratoga trunk. Nail kegs of anger. Or one that I can kind of relate to. Chemistry quizzes with Fs. <laughs> Do you hear the, the identity that's, that's uh, 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 connected with that? the identity of um, I'm no good academically. And even more importantly, even the horse I never had. The things that we hold on and created identity around are the things sometimes that didn't happen rather than the things that did happen. And what a relief. The thing I love about retreat is here I come here on retreat in that no one sees it, no one praises you on your appearance. No one sees the Saratoga trunk. Isn't that cool? Isn't that kind of relieving knowing that nobody else is seeing it? I'm relieved. <laughs> this, is, this is the entangling quality of identity. The process of, oh, this is who I think I am. This is me. And, and, and the burden of carrying such a big load of this is me, this is mine, this is who I am. Incredibly confining when we get lost in that kind of identification. One example of this, this is a little bit extreme, but I, I think it's helpful. This is something that we do to ourselves and that we do to others. I had a friend who uh, grew up and in her family, her parents would uh, treat the children in a very interesting way. There was one child that was very gifted uh, musically. So she would be really affirmed whenever she was playing the piano. But in terms of academics, they'd be like, you know what, you're, you're not good at math. You're, you're the musician in the family. This is what you should be doing. 
And then if the one that was academically inclined got interested in, in music, it'd be like, sorry, that's not your realm. You're the academic one. And the artistic one would be the same thing. They were put in a certain box or a certain slot. They were confined to a certain identity. So oppressive. Have you noticed that when somebody does that to you? Or maybe you grew up in, in some kind of environment like that. Or how confining it is when we do it to ourselves. We stamp some kind of identity on us that can be so oppressive. And there's the self that is, 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 has become something that's separated us from being with the world. And it traps us in this dynamic of, of trying to become special. It's painful, it's tragic. And, and this is why it's so important to let go of the sack, the, sa- the, the sack that where we get entangled with the sense of self. So again, both of these are important, taking up the sense of self and dropping it, dropping that Saratoga trunk, disentangling from it. How do we drop it? How do we drop the sack of the entangling sense of self? And it's just this practice. It's seeing the building blocks of this identification process. Seeing how we create out of sensation and emotion and thoughts, out of this whole world of experience, how we create a sense of self that we get entangled with. That whole list that she gave us in the poem, the nail kegs of anger, even the horse I never had, it's a conglomeration. It's a conglomeration of thoughts, usually entangled with emotion, with sensation, that bubble up, and then there's a claiming of it, an entanglement with it. It's just seeing those component parts again and again and again of experience, how they arise and pass away. That's, that's the movement into, into freedom, into letting go of the sack. And the Buddha, again, explains this, really puts this, really explains this as a practice. I don't want to give that language. Here, Agivisena again, the debater asks the Buddha, Master Gotama, in what way is a practitioner an arhant with taints destroyed, one who has lived the holy life, done what had to be done, laid down the burden, reached the goal, destroyed the fetters, and is completely liberated through final knowledge? Here, Agivisena, any kind of formation, formations whatsoever, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, a practitioner has seen all formations as they actually are, with proper wisdom thus. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. And through not clinging in this way, the practitioner is liberated. It is in this way that a practitioner is an arhant with tates destroyed, one who has lived the holy life, done what had to be done, laid down the burden, reached the goal, destroyed the fetters, and is completely liberated through final knowledge. It's just that simple seeing within experience that it's not me, it's not mine, and it's not myself. How do we do it? With the way I was describing it. Seeing the component parts, these building blocks of experience and how they arise and pass away. If we see them arise and pass away, they can't be me, they can't be mine, they can't be myself. And I want to point out, when you do this, what starts to happen is there can be all different kinds of flavors of this not-self that arises. Sometimes it can be very dramatic, often, just as I was talking about the impermanence talk, often it's very undramatic. It's, It's just this simple feeling quality that this is not me, this is not mine. And allowing that to percolate through the system so that, so that this, this mind and body moves towards awakening.
what comes out of this? What kind of way of, of being in the world arises through really getting that this experience is not me, not mine, not I? What way of being where we can skillfully take up the stack and also let it go? Again, another poem. And this is from the Zen poet Ryokan. And he begins by asking this question. He's asking this question of my legacy, my legacy, what will it be? And I just want to take that piece of the poem first. What will, you, what will your legacy be of living this life that you have? What kind of legacy do you want to leave? Do you want to leave a legacy that's entangled with some fixed sense of self? That's all about becoming? Is that what you want to leave in this world? Or maybe something like Ryokan. So he asked, my legacy, what will it be? Flowers in spring, the cuckoo in summer, and the crimson maples of autumn. My legacy, what will it be? Flowers in spring, the cuckoo in summer, and the crimson maples of autumn. What I love about this poem, and what I love about um, uh, a lot of uh, Japanese poems, is what's not there. <laughs> and when, when I am not there, that, that sticky sense of self, a quality of intimacy, the intimacy of the flowers in spring, the intimacy with the cuckoo in summer, and the intimacy with the crimson maples of autumn. I find that a quality of, of a, a spiritual intimacy can arise when we can see through this fixed sense of self in a way that's, that's supported with a, a, a skillful sense of self. So may we all leave a kind of legacy that honors this practice of skillfully taking up the sack and skillfully letting it go in a way that leads to the liberation of all beings. Let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.